0: Let's also turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, we'll read the first uh, 14 verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died once, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise you also. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, For you are not under law, but under grace. Let us also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it. Nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? To assure me, during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I realize the thought might have occurred to some of you that it seems out of place uh, to consider the death of Christ on uh, Easter Sunday. We have already given uh, focused attention to the sufferings of our Savior and his death upon a cross, especially on Friday. And we're not going to focus uh, this evening on Christ's death in connection with his experience of suffering, or even dwell uh, so much on the fact that he endured hellish agony for us. That's the meaning of uh, this article, He Descended into Hell. It's not a description of what happened to our Savior after he died, but it is a a summary statement that confesses the, the depths of his sufferings which he endured especially upon the cross, as one accursed of God and forsaken by him. And in doing that, he bore the the punishment of hell that I deserve. That's the comfort there. Uh, we're not going to focus on that uh, so much either tonight. And of course, not because these things are unimportant, uh but because, as already said, we have so recently considered them together. But also, rather positively, we want to give... Uh, more attention to the benefits that we receive uh, from Christ's suffering and death, especially as confessed in question and answers 42 and 43 of this uh, Lord's Day before us this evening. For Christ himself, his death, his, his burial, and his descent into hell are steps of his humiliation, and it is proper that we should remember them uh, with humility, uh, with sorrow for sin, with the deepest reverence for what it meant for our Lord Jesus Christ, for the innocent and holy Son of God, so uh, to suffer. But it is not irreverent for us, nor is it contrary uh, to the honor of our Savior, to see his death also as a mighty conquest. To see it as a a Samson-like victory over his enemies. To see it as a monster slain. To see it as a happy defeat of a hideous enemy. Well, who is that enemy? Who is that foe that was slain by the death of Christ? And perhaps we immediately think of Satan. And yes, indeed, the the, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, spelled his defeat. In his death, he spoiled principalities and powers and made an open display of them upon the cross. But I'm not thinking of that enemy. I'm thinking of an enemy, a foe that is much closer to home. I'm referring to the old man, to use the language of Scripture, to use the language as confessed, in, uh, question and answer 43 with respect to the further benefit we derive from Christ's death, it says by his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him. And that's a reference to you and I as to the depraved nature that we have in Adam. That's a reference to this wretched slave of sin that I am apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a reference to the child of wrath and of evil that I am by birth. This old nature, this old Adam that defines who I am as depraved and fallen in Adam from conception that old man was put to death in the death of christ we have died to sin in the death of christ that's our theme that we're considering this evening and we begin by considering the the necessary fact of christ's death it is true that often the the reality of christ's death is considered on easter sunday simply to uh Expound the significance of his resurrection—that in fact it was a resurrection from the dead. That it was not just the appearance of death. Uh, Jesus was not in a deep swoon from which he recovered. No, he actually died. And of course, it's important to uh, appreciate that. But it's important to appreciate theologically the necessity of that death—not simply as the background to the truth of his resurrection, but the necessity of his death because uh God's justice and God's truth required nothing less than the death of Christ. We heard uh the angels quote the words of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. There was a, a divine necessity to Christ's arrest. And crucifixion unto death. That is assumed, of course, by the necessity also of his resurrection. The justice and truth required the death of Christ. But actually, there's a, a kind of logical step involved in this necessity. That's not really spelled out, but it's uh, very important to understand. Something's left out of this explanation. And, uh, and that is that This necessity, even from the justice and truth of God, makes sense only as we see the Son of God in the place of sinners. Yes, the Bible teaches that the soul that sins, it shall die. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. But those pronouncements of God's justice, those declarations of the truth of God's vindicative justice they cannot touch christ what do they have to do with him as the innocent son of god they could not touch him otherwise had he not been made sin for us had he not taken our place it would have been uh, the worst kind of injustice for the Holy One to be made a curse had it not been that He was willingly made a curse for us as our substitute. You see, it's the penalty for sin that was against us, which He willingly undertook for Himself. It's that penalty for sin that demanded that His soul should die. And the details of his death recorded by John reveal uh, divine providence, proclaiming divine vengeance to the fullest extent of the law. God in his promise uh, enlists uh, everything surrounding this event in order to accomplish this divine necessity. He even enlists uh, the hypocritical sanctimoniousness of the Jewish leaders. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm referring to uh, their request of Pilate that the legs of those crucified might be broken in order to hasten their death. Why? So that their bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, and it appears that they thought that uh, the Sabbath would be profane, perhaps, if these bodies hung upon the day, or if there was work involved in taking them down. And so the soldiers were to hasten the death of, of these criminals by breaking their legs so that they would soon suffocate to death. And it's in that connection that we get this testimony of these professional executioners that in Jesus' case it was not necessary. And God in His divine providence ensured that the Scripture was fulfilled, that initially spoke of the Passover lamb that was fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, that not a bone of Him was broken, that the Scripture was fulfilled because it was unnecessary because it had become very, very clear that Jesus was already dead. And to make sure, without any possibility of doubt, another scripture was fulfilled in the action of a soldier who took his spear and and pierced the side of Jesus. And further testimony of the water and blood that came from him made unmistakably clear that the Lord Jesus Christ was dead and another scripture was fulfilled which says they shall look on him whom they pierced the handling of Jesus corpse also verifies his death we might think that uh, answer 41 is is rather unsatisfactory because it's so short when it simply uh, says in answer to the question why was he buried his burial Testifies that he really died. And uh, our confessions never claim to teach everything that is of importance and significance in Scripture. And uh, so uh, uh, we can acknowledge that this is not a, a full, complete description of the significance of Jesus' burial, but what it says is true. And what it says has importance, even when you consider the details of his burial. Jesus was not hastily tossed in a pit or hastily placed within a tomb. But there was a lot of activity involved in in, in handling His dead, cold, still body by those who prepared Him for burial lovingly, meticulously, carefully wrapping Him in spices and these Cloths that we consider this morning. Again, further testimony to the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ indeed was, was dead. And you might think that, that, uh, these are morbid details. And in a way they are. When you look up the meaning of morbid, it, uh, it means having an unusual interest in death. And, uh, yes, we take we take an interest in Christ's death, not in a morbid way, not not in the sense simply of, of trying to uh play upon our imaginations or or to arouse sympathetic feelings, but we take an interest of faith in the reality of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it actually really has a lot to do with our with our comfort. It has a whole lot to do with the the knowledge of salvation. It has a whole lot to do with the knowledge of ourselves in relationship to our sin. Has our sin really been paid for? Well, in answer to that question, the Bible says, look by faith. Look at that still, cold corpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is He really dead? Does your old man, does this sinful nature still dominate your lives? Does He still rule over me? Sometimes it feels like it. It sure seems like it often. Well, in answer to the question, look, pay careful attention, take great interest, meditate upon the dead body of Jesus and be assured that your old man, your old nature is dead. Can I still live in sin? May I still live in shame because the reality of the extent of the evil of my nature Should I live with a kind of pessimistic or despairing outlook on life because of sins that have scarred me and they still haunt me? And perhaps it's proper that I should hang my head in shame and live the rest of my life with a sense of the dominion of this depraved nature over me. And God says, no, no. You look at the Lord Jesus. Dead for your sin. And in his death, see the death of your old nature. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The assumption of such a question is that in fact we have died to sin in the Lord Jesus Christ in a most profound way. In a way that has tremendous Uh, implications for our self-knowledge. That has tremendous significance in terms of how we understand our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute. And that relates to our second consideration, the certain relationship believers have to His death. Yes, the death of Jesus Christ guarantees our justification. Justification. It guarantees that there is no condemnation for us, for any who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus indeed paid the penalty for our sins by his death. He suffered the wrath and judgment of God in our place. And so the death of Christ guarantees our justification. But no less, the death of Jesus Christ guarantees our sanctification. He paid the penalty for our sin by His death. And He achieved our deliverance from sin by His death. Knowing this, it's one of those significant... uh uh, phrases that we find in the New Testament that uh describes what ought to be the self-knowledge, the certain knowledge of believers about themselves in relationship to Christ. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. This mass of, of sinful nature that characterizes me as fallen in Adam, Christ died so that our old man, being crucified with him, that this body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And believers have died with Christ by virtue of a union with him such that they are freed from sin. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we have been completely deliberated from the reality of sins in our lives and the practice of sins in terms of the commission of things that are contrary to God's God's will. But that's still different than living in sin That's still different than practicing sin as a way of life. That's still different than being under the dominion and the rule of sin so that there is no effective struggle against it. That it still rules our minds and hearts. That's what characterizes the old man. And that old man is dead. See, answer 43 basically summarizes the significance of these verses that we read from Romans 6 where it asks, What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By His power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us. Now, this is based, and it really depends for an understanding of what the Scripture says here, it's based on the believer's spiritual union with Christ. It's that spiritual union uh, with Christ that is signified and sealed to us in our baptism itself. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptism is the sign of the reality of a spiritual union with Jesus Christ such that in his death we died in a very significant way that is so important for us to believe and understand. And this, this union with Christ is not some mere theological idea. But this union with Christ is a vital, it is a living connection. So that what Christ has accomplished by His death has a real, a factual, in-your-life effect upon all those who are in Christ. They no longer serve sin as their master. Now that's a statement of fact. Okay, They no longer serve sin as their master. It's not a statement of obligation. It's not they ought to no longer serve sin as their master. That's true, and we'll consider that. That's a corollary to this. It follows it. But it's based upon a statement of fact. Sin no longer has a condemning power over them, right? Because they're justified. And all their sins have been paid for by the death of Christ. But sin no longer has a controlling effect upon them such that it exercises a kind of domination over them and rules their lives. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The next chapter enlarges upon that uh, further in verses 4 through 6, where our relationship to the law is compared to the relationship of a woman uh, to a husband. She's under the law of her husband as long as he lives, but when he dies, uh, she is free from that law. And Paul says, My brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So when we were in the flesh, very important description here. When we were in the flesh, that is, when we were nothing more than lost sinners in Adam, In Adam all die, in Adam all are condemned, in Adam all are slaves to sin. When we were in the flesh, past tense, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. A great change has taken place. Believers are no longer in the flesh. They're in the Spirit. They're in Christ. And because of that spiritual union with Jesus Christ, that actually in our own life and experience is affected when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, a fundamental change takes place also with respect to our lives. Not simply our status, not simply our legal standing before God, but in terms of our actual lives, a difference occurs. We're no longer in the flesh. We're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new master. And we're not under the law as those under his con- its condemnation, but we're under the law to Christ, as those redeemed from its curse. You see, there is a sanctifying power to the death of Christ which has entered the life of every true Christian and delivered them from the rule of sin. And that's why the Bible gives no support and you will not find Biblical language in Scripture to give any support to the notion that there are Christian drunkards, that there are Christian sex addicts, that there are Christian murderers, that there are Christian gluttons, that there are Christian thieves, that there are Christian covetous persons. You will not find such language in Scripture. Does that mean that Christians never fall into such sins? Does that mean that Christians may never be overcome and ensnared by such sins for a time? No, no, no. But it means that such sins no longer define them. Such sins will no longer dominate their lives and rule over them such that they do not repent, fight against them, find help and strength, are preserved even in the lowest state of backsliding by the grace of God. Such were some of you, Paul says, after describing drunkards, homosexuals, thieves, covetousness persons, idolaters. No more. You are washed. You are justified. You are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Sin no longer has a condemning nor a controlling power over true Christians. Because they're in Christ. And if any man is in Christ, new creation, new creation. Doesn't mean that the struggle is over in a way. The struggle has only begun. Those who are in the flesh are at at home with sin. They're at peace with it. Oh, they may have different conflicting um, lusts. They may desire to have a good reputation. They might be desire to be thought well of. They might desire to avoid ruining their health by drugs and alcohol. They might uh, desire to avoid a whole lot of sins, but the reasons are just other sins. Pride, self-righteousness. And so, actually, they're not at war with sin. They may be at war with sins, but sin rules them. And that leads to the practical application of our death in Christ. Answer 43 quotes Romans 12 towards the end where it says, But that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, based upon the the wonder of this gospel of free grace in Christ, this gospel that includes deliverance from the dominion of sin. I beseech you, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Our catechism says that instead of uh, these evil desires ruling us, we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice to thanksgiving. And that, that word... May is uh, significant here. It seems to have a a variety of different nuances here. Certainly it involves the privilege of grace. And it involves also uh, the ability of grace. There is a new ability. Not in ourselves, but by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, There is spiritual strength to wage war against sin that we don't have by nature. And then there is that activity of grace, the actual exercise of such grace in offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices. You see, the non-dominion of sin is an experiential reality but it's worked out in the actual rough and tumble of spiritual effort and spiritual warfare. And that includes spiritual failures, too, at times. But it means that resistance to sin is a fact. And resistance to sin is not futile, as if there's no possibility of progress and growth in the Christian life. It's not only possible, it is certain. How can those... Who are united to Jesus Christ by true faith, not bring forth the fruits of righteousness. Impossible. And so, there is the effort that's not futile, but it's an effort that is still necessary. And the Bible also emphasizes that. Our deliverance from the dominion of sin doesn't mean, oh, no, we can just coast. We're freed from sin, no worries. No, death to the dominion of sin means dying more and more to the practice of sin. Colossians chapter 3, we're exhorted to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth, and then, and then the reason for that spiritual mindedness is, for you died. You might say, well, what do you mean I died? I'm, I'm alive and well. no. It's with reference to the old man. It's with reference to the sinful nature that died by virtue of union with Jesus Christ who died. And in him you died to sin. But then we get to verse 5, and we read, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Like These things are totally foreign to your new identity in Christ. These are the reasons why unbelievers suffer the judgment of God. But you still have to wage war against them. You have to put them off in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. You see the distinction? No more. You don't walk in them. You don't live in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Based upon this union with Christ, based upon the decisive death of the old man in the death of Christ, there is the, the ability, but also the necessity to resist sin and to walk more and more according to God's will. The logic of grace is at work in a renewed mind. When when Paul says at the beginning of chapter 6 of Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That seems to be logical. If uh where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. If our sins have completely been paid for in Christ, well, uh, it's to his glory that the more we sin, the more he forgives. Let sin that grace may be abound. While the renewed mind says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? It's unthinkable that we should reason that way. I cannot just sin that grace may abound. The Lord's grace itself makes the very idea quite awful to me. To indulge in sin? That's who I am by nature. And there's still remnants of that. But that's not who I am. Fundamentally, in Christ, how can I sin and do this great evil in the sight of God? That was Joseph's answer to temptation. And that increasingly must be our answer to temptation. That the reality of this grace that we have in Christ, indeed, should be a great motivation for us to work out the reality of that identity. We have that very thing in Romans chapter 6. We have the categorical statement, sin shall not have dominion over you. And then what do we read in verse 11 and 12? Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. It's like, sin shall not have dominion over you, therefore don't let it have dominion over you. Because of who we are in Christ, we can, by God's grace, we have a new ability. And we must. And we will. We will, by the grace of God, continue to put off the old and to put on the new to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to God, to resist temptation, to fight against it our entire lives by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And eventually I will enjoy complete victory. My death to sin in Christ will mean complete deliverance. The next chapter of Romans describes the reality of of Christian experience. I wouldn't say that it is... Uh, so characteristic of Christian experience that it dominates our sense of self and our outlook, but it describes the reality that Christians are familiar with in terms of the struggle with sin, the fact that the things that we really want to do, we'd never do them as we would, and the things that we hate, we still end up doing them. And that means that, yes, though the old man has uh been decisively put to death, uh, in Christ, it's like there are remnants of that sinful nature that still cling to us. And there is a struggle. And it led the Apostle Paul himself to say, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, that doesn't mean that uh no, the body itself is evil. No, our bodies belong to Jesus Christ as well. And uh, we're united to him body and soul and our whole uh, body, spirit, and uh, soul are being sanctified. But the fact remains that in this present life, yet our bodies themselves become yet a ready instrument for sin. And we always have to say, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little tongue what you say. But that also will come to an end. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that will happen at death, unless Christ returns first for all of us. Sometimes when uh, we describe the death of a loved one, we might say their long battle is over. And very often that's a description of a long battle with cancer, perhaps. Or with other, uh, physical breakdown. And, uh, we say their battle is finished. And now they're at rest. I'm not saying it's improper to use such language to think that way, but it might be yet more biblical to think, yeah, this brother or sister has been battling with sin for 20, 40, 60, 80 years. And the struggle with temptation involved many falls and many imperfections and sins. And now the struggle is over. They've died to sins. That's actually where the Catechism describes the death of believers. Why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins. And I think it's significant that it uses the plural there. Let's say it's a dying to sin in a way that 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 has been accomplished with the the death of the old man, our, our nature by virtue of our union with Christ. But our death is the dying to sins. No more commission of any sins whatsoever. And already in anticipation of that, we say, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has delivered us from the condemnation of sin, delivered us from the dominion of sin. He's delivering us increasingly from the practice of sin and that deliverance will be complete upon our glorification at death and ultimately when Jesus returns and these bodies that are sown in incorruption will be raised in incorruption and will be the perfect vessel, the perfect instrument for everlasting worship and praise to glorify God with forever. Amen.